Several years ago, our evangelist Ian Leach kindly obtained for me a copy of her book I'd been trying to get for quite a long time. It was actually written probably almost 150 years ago by the great Baptist preacher from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, C.H. Spurgeon. And the book is entitled, Faith's Checkbook. And if you look on the screen, you will see that... Uh, with apologies to our American friends who can't spell, you'll know that this is, um, this is an American edition, which is why the word check is spelt C-H-E-C-K. And I want to read from the preface about what Spurgeon says, and it's related to our theme this morning. This is what he says. A promise from God may instructively be compared to a check payable to order. It's given to the believer with a view of bestowing upon him some good thing. Then he says it's not meant he should read it over comfortably, then have done with it. No, he is to treat the promise as a reality, as a man treats a check. He must believingly present the promise to the Lord, as a man presents a check at the counter of a bank, he must plead it by prayer, expecting to have it fulfilled. And then he makes an important proviso that many people forget in this respect. He says, if he has come to heaven, heaven's bank, at the right date, he will receive the promised amount at once. If the date should happen to be further on, he must wait patiently till its arrival. But meanwhile, he may count the promise as money, for the bank is sure to pay when the date arrives. Now, I want you to keep that in mind, because we're going to come to that. We're continuing our morning theme of this whole year on prayer. And we're beginning today a very brief series of five entitled The Church That Prayed, looking at the account of the early church in the book of Acts. And in the first of our series, our topic is what Spurgeon spoke about in the preface to this book, Prayer and Promise. And it's based on the opening two chapters of the book of Acts. Now, it's vitally important this morning you have a Bible open in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. It's page 1092. We're going to be looking at, want to walk you through a couple of chapters. All right? So you need to try and concentrate and follow. You'll see things on the screen which hopefully will tell you where we're going. So if you have a Bible in front of you, you can't see one, just ask someone to pass one to you. It's important to have it in front of you. Now, in the opening paragraphs, in verses 1 to 11, we're told about this 40-day period, this 40-day window between the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And we learn from the opening verses of Luke's second volume that on one occasion, while Jesus was sharing a meal with his followers, he reminded them about a promise. The promise of a gift that the Father had made and which Jesus had spoken about previously. The promised gift. Look at verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The promised gift 
is made by the Father, spoken of by the Son, concerning the Spirit. Now, the gift that was promised is the promised Holy Spirit, whom they were to receive. Three years before this, John the Baptist had burst onto the national scene of Israel, announcing that the Messiah was about to arrive. And the people had naturally thought, maybe John himself was the promised Christ, the Messiah. But John had left them in no doubt. This is what Mark writes in his Gospel. John said, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, here in Acts, three years on, Jesus tells the disciples, remember that in a few days' time, it's about to happen. The gift is about to arrive. The gift is about to be given. In a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Instead of, as in the past, under the old agreement, covenant, where the Holy Spirit came upon individuals in small measure for a particular purpose, Jesus says this will be radically different. This is a new day when you'll be baptized literally in the Spirit. As John baptized people in the medium of water, if you like, you are to be baptized in the Spirit. Now, the disciples knew, of course, knowing the Old Testament, which is their Hebrew Scriptures, that this kind of thing had been foretold by the prophets long before. And so they naturally jumped to the conclusion that this was the last days, the end of history, when God was about to restore the kingdom to Israel and save his people. And so they said in verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now Jesus doesn't say it won't happen. He just says it won't happen yet and that's not your priority. You don't need to know about such things. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 7, no, he says, the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you for a particular purpose, to enable you to be witnesses about Jesus to the ends of the earth. Power to be witnesses. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after this, Jesus is taken up into heaven, what we call the ascension of Jesus. Now, back to our theme, prayer and promise. A gift, an amazing gift, the greatest gift imaginable, really, is promised here. The check as it were, is written out, guaranteed by God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, as it were, it cannot yet be cashed at heaven's bank, because the due date has not yet arrived. So, as Jesus instructed them, the apostles returned to Jerusalem, what for? To wait for the gift my Father promised. Verse 12, they go back to Jerusalem to wait for the day when the cheque can be cashed at the bank of heaven, waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we read through verses 12 to 26, which we won't, you can read them when you get home, you'll discover that they didn't just sit around passively with nothing to do. They waited in prayer. 
verse 14. They all joined together, the apostles, the family, friends, other followers of Jesus. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They're waiting for the day. The day chosen by God. They don't know what day it will be, but they've been told it's in a few days. Finally, the day arrives. The day when, as it were, the door of the bank of heaven is open and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the waiting disciples. Now the gift is received. Look at chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Think about that this evening if you're here when we're speaking about the gift of tongues. Now the day the Father has chosen is no accident. It is the day of Pentecost, the Jewish festival when Jews from all over the ancient world, scattered in various countries, came together to celebrate that time when they wandered in the wilderness and God brought them to the promised land. It was a kind of harvest festival to celebrate the bringing in of the crops. And this is the day the Father has chosen. So, the Spirit-baptized disciples go out into the streets to fulfill the mission that the Holy Spirit gave them to spread the good news of Jesus to the gathered crowds from all different nations to bring in a great harvest of people into God's kingdom. Now, the crowds who hear them are amazed because they recognize from their accents that these are unschooled Galileans. Galileans came from the north. Uh, I'm from the north of England and the assumption from anyone from the south of England is if you come from the north, you're not too bright. And that's true in Israel as well. And uh, they said, are not these all unschooled Galileans? Verse 11, how is it then that we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own languages? And they ask, what on earth is happening? Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Others, however, make fun of the disciples and suggest they are drunk. Verse 13 of chapter 2, some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much to drink. So Peter, I hope you're following this, it's very important to follow the, the logic of this. Peter, the spokesman for the eleven apostles, raises his voice and addresses the crowd. Now, why does he do that? The purpose of his message is to explain what has happened to the disciples, to explain about this gift that has now been given. So, the next few verses, from 14 to 36, Peter explains about the gift. Look at verse 14. Then Peter stood up the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. He says, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning to be drunk. Rather, he says, just as the prophets promised, this is the day, the day when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon you, foretold by the prophets. And he quotes there from the apostle, uh, from the prophet Joel. Look at verse 17. Verse 16, no, he says, we're not drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. You'll find that in the Old Testament, book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28, right through to 32. And Peter then explains 
that the key to this gift, the person who has brought it about, the one who has given it, is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Turn over the page, Acts chapter 2. Actually, sorry, just below that in verse 22 on Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth is the key to this whole situation. And he concludes by saying, talking about Jesus, all that he did, he says, this Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. And we're witnesses of this fact. We've met him. We know it's true. We're eyewitnesses. We can attest to this fact. Now he says, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. That's the place of supreme authority in heaven and on earth. And the Father has given to him, the ascended Jesus, has given to him the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus now pours out upon his followers. The promised gift of the Spirit has been given by Jesus. Look at verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Peter concludes his message, verse 36, by saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, this is a devastating bombshell to those who are hearing him. We read that they're cut to the heart. Imagine, from a Jewish heritage, this is the day every Jew has prayed to see. This is the day that every Jewish family prays their child may live to see the day of the Messiah, the day of God's coming, the day of the Spirit poured out. Imagine, Peter tells them, you've missed it. Not only that, it's like the gift came and you threw it in the rubbish bin, as it were. This Jesus who brought you the gift, you've crucified him. Your Lord, your Christ. No wonder, therefore, that they ask, verse 36, Brothers, what should we do? They're cut to the heart. Now notice, we're coming to the application here, but it's important to see the background and the, the way that this develops. Notice what Peter says and also what Peter does not say at this point. All right? For it's vitally important to us as well. He does not say to the crowd, too bad, you've missed it and it's too late. Nor does he say, okay, come with us to that upper room where we receive the Spirit and we'll have a waiting meeting and you also can receive the Spirit if you wait like we did. No, he says, the day has come. The gift has been offered. And he offers them the gift and the terms for receiving it. Now look at verse 38. Peter replied, when they say, what should we do? That's what he says. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now here's the point. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you. You people who killed him. It's not too late. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Hang on to that because that's us. 
and for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promised gift of the Holy Spirit is now offered to all. Even those who put Jesus to death. The only condition is repentance, that is turning to God, admitting what you've done, confessing your sin, and putting your faith in Jesus. They must confess their sin and guilt, turn to God, declaring their allegiance to God publicly, in the public act of baptism in water. That's their responsibility. For his part, God offers to them two things. Forgiveness of sin, putting the past right, and the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and baptism in water. On God's part, forgiveness and baptism in the Spirit. Now, historically, of course, these are all tied together. We have tended to separate what God has joined together, sadly. But this is the important point here. The gift is now offered. And Peter, as it were, offers the gift to the crowd. And the amazing thing on this amazing day is that 3,000 people respond in repentance, in faith, are baptised in water and baptised in the Spirit. It's very important that we understand what the text is all about and what the Word of God says on this vitally important subject. So, if we've got this framework in mind, we now need to turn to the relevance of it to us today. The events in Acts occurred in the first century. We live in the 21st century. But the first century of what? The 21st century of what? The first century AD. The 21st century AD. We even date things by these events. A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the most privileged people who have ever lived because we do not live B.C., before the coming of Christ, before his promised coming had arrived. We do not live B.C., before the coming of Christ. It's the first thing. I tried to put it graphically. It's not very good on the screen, but try and follow what we're saying. We are not where the arrow is on the screen, are we? All right? Those events that culminated in the resurrection of Jesus. Nor do we live between that period leading up to the resurrection of Jesus. We do not live in the period when Jesus walked on earth. Nor do we live in that 40-day window between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that remarkable period, we don't live in that historical period. Nor do we live in that 10-day period between the ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, when the apostles of Jesus had to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. No, we live after Pentecost. What Peter calls the last days. He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. These are the last days. He doesn't mean last in the sense of tomorrow everything's going to finish. He means the final days of all God's promises. The Bible calls it the day of grace. 
the day of opportunity, the final and greatest period in human history in which all God's promises have reached their final fulfillment in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit so that the good news of Jesus can now be carried from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We live in the day of grace, the day of gospel, the day of good news. So back to us. How do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, the promise is received by prayer in which we come to God and ask. In which we come to God and say, I turn from my sin. I turn to God and I put my faith in Christ. Now, let's go back to the quote where we started from Spurgeon's book, Faith's Checkbook. Listen again, maybe it makes more sense now. A promise from God may instructively be compared to a check payable to order. It is given to the believer with a view of bestowing upon him some good thing. He must believingly present the promise to the Lord as a man presents a check at the counter of a bank. He must plead it by prayer, expecting to have it fulfilled. Now the next bit. If he has come to heaven's bank at the right date, he will receive the promised amount at once. If the date should happen to be further on, he must wait patiently till its arrival. It's what the disciples did in the upper room. But meanwhile, he may count the promise as money, for the bank is sure to pay when the due date arrives. Now, surely the point here is this. There is no need to wait patiently, as Spurgeon puts it, for the right day has arrived. Heaven's bank, as it were, the doors are open for all who will come, for all whom God calls to the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. As Peter said on the day when the doors of Heaven's bank were flung wide open, the promise is made. He says the promise is for you and for your children and for all people who were far off, who have not yet heard about it, who were far off from God who were not part of his original covenant people, the people of Israel. This promise is for you. And we are those who are far off, who are now invited to draw near to God in repentance and faith, and as it were, to use faith's checkbook. And really my message is very simple, but of the most incredible importance. And I simply ask you this morning, Have you done that? If the promise is for you, have you received the gift? Have you come to God in repentance and faith and received the promised gift of his Holy Spirit? And I say to you, if you have, incidentally but also importantly, have you declared to the world your allegiance to Jesus Christ? as they did in those days. When you're baptized in water, it's a sign of what God has already done for you. That you're declaring to the world, God has done this for me. And I want to declare my allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply asking you, really, whether you're a Christian. It's possible to be ignorant about this. There are so many Christians who focus, vitally important though it is, on the fact that God has forgiven our sin that we've been put right with God. 
and that we've got to hope that when we die, it will just be a continuation of eternal life that begins on earth when we shall be with Christ forever. But it's easy to be ignorant of this other fact, this vitally important fact. How are you going to live your life until that day? How are you going to be a witness to Christ to the ends of the earth or where God has placed you in your college or university or your home or your workplace or your family or your gym or the place where you do your recreation? You will never do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. God would not expect you to. The promise is for you. The Bible often says you have not. Well, it says in James 4, you have not because you ask not. And our desperate need, surely, is that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Spirit. Use the language you like. Baptism is a reference to the first time. That we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. The power of the Spirit. Today the bank is open. You can draw on heaven's bank. If you will come in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. One final thing. The door of heaven's bank is open, but not forever. You see, the last days that Peter spoke about, one day will end in the last day. That day will be ushered in when Jesus returns to earth a second time. Book of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that judgment... And he says that Christ will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, he's already done that. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting patiently for him. Last few verses of Hebrews chapter 9. When Jesus returns to earth a second time, then the offer will close. Look again. Here's where we live. In the last days. But when Christ returns a second time, then the offer will close. There will no longer be any opportunity to respond to God's gracious offer of salvation to receive his spirit. And this makes it all the more vital and important that we respond while we can. Because none of us, as Norrie said to the children, none of us knows when Christ will return again. This is why it is such an urgent day that we live in. That is why it's so urgent that filled with the Spirit we go and make disciples of all nations and inform people of God's gracious offer but also that Christ will return one day to judge the world. It's vitally important that we respond while we can. And as we respond, filled with the Spirit, so we go out to be witnesses for Christ. No one knows when that day will be. So it's vital to respond while we can. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says, Don't miss out. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now, today, is the day of salvation. Don't miss out. Let's pray together. Hmm. If today God has spoken to you, maybe he's been speaking to you for a long time, and as yet you've not responded in repentance and faith in Christ, or received the gift of his Holy Spirit, then today is an opportunity to do that. A day of grace. A day, the day of salvation.
So if you hear his voice speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Turn to him and just admit your need. Ask for God's forgiveness. Put your trust in Christ who died for you and rose again. And ask God to give you his Holy Spirit as he promised. God always fulfills his promises. Lord, as we bow in your presence, you know each one of us. You know our hearts. And so, Lord, help us each one to respond to the gracious offer of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we go from this place being filled with your spirit to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One final thing, we're almost finished. As I was speaking, I'm aware that many of us, we look back and we say, yes, I remember that day when I came to Christ. I can remember even now, it's more than 40 years ago, when I came to Christ and confessed my sin to him and received the Holy Spirit. But it's possible today to be desperately aware of how much we need a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit in our lives and in this church and in whatever church you may be represented in. I only know Charlotte Chapel and I only know my own heart. Why is that so? Because we grieve the Spirit by our sin and we quench the Spirit by our unbelief. And so if that's the case, how do we receive a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, the promise is still for us we receive the same way as we first came. We admit our need, our sin, our unbelief. And we simply come to God and ask him again to fill us with his spirit. Jesus told us that the Father is only too willing to do that. So I finish with some words of Jesus and then we sing our final hymn, The Father's Promise to His Children. Jesus said, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks the door will be opened. Now here's the promise. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Surely today, each one of us needs to ask the Father, who is only too willing to give to us his Holy Spirit in full measure. And it's vitally important, not just for us, but for the name of Jesus. And our final prayer is a hymn that asks that God might do this for us as a church. I believe that's what we need as a church in Charlotte Chapel. We need a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit on us as a congregation and as individuals. And the last verse of our hymn reminds us why it's so vital, why the Spirit is needed. Revive us, Lord, is zeal abating, while harvest fields are vast and white. Revive us, Lord, the world is waiting. Equip your church to spread the light. Let's use this final hymn as a prayer. Over